some of the scenes that we saw in that in that situation, I, I often wonder how much we damaged those poor people. We flew around for the entire day. We never found a single survivor. We just found just dead people. The owner of this this house had actually tried it pulled the contents of the fridge out and tried to seek refuge in the fridge when the fire was coming through, and, and her her remains were at the exact place where those dogs had indicated. And I picked it up, and oh my God, someone has gone to town in there and said the most horrible things. Um, on pretty much every page. Welcome back to the Quantum Podcast with myself, Ethan, where I aim to speak to high performers and high performance practitioners about the hows and the whys behind what they do and break it down with them. This is just a quick note before we get into this episode with Darren Hodge to like, subscribe, share the podcast and just support in any which way you can. Anyone who listens, I really appreciate you. We're in 40 different countries now, which is amazing, but we only aim to get bigger and bigger as we go. So thank you so much for that. I hope you enjoy this episode with Darren. It's a really good one, so stay tuned. Okay, so the last time we spoke, we were talking about the Bali bombings and the effect it had on you. Mm -hmm. But you were also involved in the Black Saturday fires as well, weren't you? Yes, yep. So just for those who don't know what they are, just describe the turn of events that happened. Uh, So Black Saturday um, was, uh, I guess, a perfect storm in terms of a weather event. We had extreme temperatures, I think 43, 44 degrees um, with 100 kilometre hour winds. And uh, yeah, it was just a perfect storm. So um, very great, very high fire risk. And, um, you know, what came with that was some of the worst fires that Victoria's ever seen. Um, I don't actually remember any of the statistical uh, data, but I think, you know, a huge amount of uh, property loss and a substantial amount of uh, of loss of life as well. So um, my role was in that particular event was um, I was working on the, so the, the fire sort of really started um, Friday night into Saturday morning. And um, I came into work on Sunday for a day shift on the ambulance helicopter, which was a co, uh, co sort of um, co uh, located helicopter in that we worked with the police so our pilot and we had a sworn policeman in the helicopter as well so our briefing on that Sunday morning was to basically just go and look for survivors and um, you know it was really fascinating the thing that I remember one of the things I remember about that event was the fact that uh, here we are in Melbourne you know we're talking about King Lake and Marysville and you know I don't know 70 or 80 kilometers from Melbourne and and we actually had no idea what had happened Um, the authorities didn't have any idea about the loss of life. Um, so to think that we could have that situation in this country was quite bizarre. But uh, so our role really was just to go out and look for survivors. So we um, we, we took off from Essendon and, um, you know, every time we saw something that we thought there could be a potential survivor, we'd land. Um, so we landed at properties that would be totally burned out, but we would see uh, there was one property had a car that the, that was intact that actually ended up being the property of a, a very famous melbourne news uh, journalist uh, property but uh, sadly he'd perished with his wife we, we went back later and recovered their remains at the bottom of their paddock and it sort of looked like they'd tried to flee the fire uh, we flew to a, a big intersection where there was a mass of cars that had all collided together and were all burnt out and um yeah look there was i, I don't remember but there was a large amount of dead people in those cars. Um, so the panic of them trying to flee the fire, they collided and um, 
they were all they all perished either in their cars or just nearby. It was just stuff that nightmares are made of. Um, but we flew around for the entire day. We never found a single survivor. We just found just dead people. How do you deal with that viewing that so so often? Um, I guess there's a bit of a disconnection in that you know it's it, it's sort of almost is not real. But you're sort of in the moment and you have a role and I think as the gravity of what we were seeing was was sort of impacting on us, we became more and more determined to try and find survivors. And there were stories of people being found in the middle of paddocks that had gone into lakes and dams and things like that. So we were really focused about trying to find um, some survivors, but, um, you know, sadly that wasn't the case. And for me, so that, that took place on the Sunday. Um, the next day, I was basically seconded to a specialist unit so called Urban Search and Rescue. Uh, it's a co, um, it's, it, it's a multi-agency task force that's made up of policemen, firemen, soldiers, um, SES, CFA. And the, the theory is around about search and rescue in the urban setting. So, you know, normally you would associate urban search and rescue with building collapse in you know, um, cyclones or earthquakes or that type of environment. But we were asked to go down there and assist, particularly the police with um, disaster and victim identification and um, and recovery of the bodies and, and, you know, lots of searching to go on to find the bodies. So um, I formed up a part of a team with probably, I think there's probably about 90 of us in total, uh, largely uh, made up of MFB. Uh, and we were deployed to King Lake, and there we just we searched for for remains of people. Um, so the, the situation typically would be there'd be some intel that um, you know such and such is missing. So we'd go to that person's home, and and we would just start going through the rem- uh, the wreckage to try and recover those people. So um, it was it was really haunting work. Um, the our, our task force was made up of professional emergency services workers, but also some volunteers. And I, I think that you have some sort of, um, I guess, uh, you, you get some sort of familiar familiarity in dealing with that sort of stuff. But when you have volunteers that might never have experienced this thing, taking them into that environment where we were, you know, literally searching for people. For, for, for bones and teeth and things like that um, and some of the scenes that we saw in that in that situation I, I often wonder how much we damaged those poor people those volunteers that wouldn't have had that sort of disaster inoculation that you, you sort of get working in the industry for a long time so um, yeah it was it was it was it was really grim gruesome work and um, but you know hundreds and hundreds of people were involved in that you know soldiers came in the army came in we had police from pretty much every state of Australia came in to do disaster victim identification. It's a very specialised field about gathering the evidence um, uh, and writing the brief for the coroner about how that person died and some real tragic stories of people taking refuge in, you know, bunkers that they built themselves thinking they would be safe that, um, that failed and, and they, they were killed. And, and, yeah, it would have been... There would have been some absolute horror up there for those poor people during that event. So hard to even comprehend the the magnitude of it and what people would have gone through you know in the final moments with something as disastrous as that yeah it defies belief doesn't it really it, it, it would have been absolute horror 
uh, and panic it's... and you know you think about families you know in those cars there was whole families in those cars trying to flare a fire um, and uh, you know, consumed in smoke and panic and um, and you know one car accident and you can see what's happened in the car accident at least that we landed at two cars have collided and then all these other cars just collided into them um, wow yeah so uh, the loss of life I, I can't remember but 18 in that particular incident seems to ring a bell but um, yeah it was just uh, yeah it was it was grim and you know I, I think going there so we I spent three days in, in um, King Lake and then we were the first uh, people to go into Marysville um, that was just horrific. You know, we, we drove in there in a convoy of fire trucks, but the, the forest was still on fire. And um, there was a, a big convention centre that had a hotel in, in the main street of um, Marysville. And I'd done some cycling up that area not that long before, so I was quite familiar with the, the town. It's a beautiful, gorgeous town. And um, the pub across the way, you know, I'd, I'd had a, a meal in with a couple of mates. And, <clears throat> you know, there, there was... Uh, really a high level of suspected loss of life in that area. And I, I finished my deployment the day after we arrived, but um, they went in there and they found multiple people in that in that area. So we, a really funny, not a funny part of it, but a, a silly side of that story is that we have, in our task force, we have um, uh, rescue dogs. And these are a volunteer organisation from South Australia that work with the uh, MFB here in Melbourne, and they um, they had German shepherds, and they were designed that they were trained to find um, uh, body parts, um, dead people, and obviously live people. And um, when we deployed, there's there was a lot of friction between the emergency services, as there always is, and there was some competition. And we were keen to use these dogs, and the, the police were not so keen to use them. And I'm not sure what their bias against the dogs was, but. Um, there was a, a fair bit of banter between our work, our task force and the police, and eventually the police were so overwhelmed that they allowed us to trial the dogs at a scene. So I, I was asked to drive the um, the team with the dogs and the dog handlers to a, a house, and um, we got there and there was some tarps in the sort of back part of the property and amongst the rubble, and I assumed that would be where the bodies were. And um, there was all these police there watching and observing and the dog trainer uh, got the first dog out and put their little boots on and they they just they just go straight to work these dogs and they started sifting through all the rubble and they went straight over to near the, the fridge and the fridge was laying down and they and they indicated that there was a dead per, you know a, a human body part or uh, human remains and i just assumed that some meat had fallen out of the fridge and the dogs were smelling the meat because the tarps were at the back Anyway, the, the, the dog handler was not dissuaded, so he said, I want to verify the find, so I'll get the other dog out. And um, the other dog got out and went straight to the exact same position and sat down. And um, the police would, had set a bit of a test, and the tarps were just a big, they were a furphy. And um, the situation was that the, um, the owner of this, this house had actually tried, had pulled the contents of the fridge out and tried to seek refuge in the fridge when the fire was coming through. And, and her, her remains were at the exact place where those dogs had indicated. And from that moment on, those dogs worked until they could basically not walk, walk anymore. They just went out and um, found person after person after person to find human remains in a, in a house. And you might find a piece of pelvis or a piece of jaw. Um, they were sort of the finds that I found when I went out and did that. We spent 
a day with a team of 40 people to find those body parts. And the dogs could go out and find them in five minutes. It was incredible. And when those dogs were deployed into that convention centre in Marysville, they just they went into a frenzy because everywhere they turned, there was they would sit and indicate um, because there was just so many people in that building that would have lost their lives. So, um, you know, a lot of chapters of post-traumatic stress disorder written in the um, Black Saturday fires for a lot of people, I suspect. It's the the work of the dogs is a really really interesting topic because it's crazy some of the stuff that we could not do that they can that they like that 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 you said you know you would have spent a day searching through rubble maybe in a couple houses but they could probably get through six or seven and have people rounded up and although it is horrid work to be doing like it's not something that anyone should ever see but to be able to get through it as quickly as that and as efficient as they can it's something incredible that just isn't sort of spoken about enough well in that particular setting so every morning we'd get up and we'd have a brief um with our team and you know the the scale and gravity of that disaster was that there was literally hundreds of people missing so there was hundreds of locations to be searched and if you say okay well for just a conventional workforce in a team of 40 to spend a day searching. And sometimes we wouldn't find anything, that the dog finds something that you think is a piece of plastic that's melted and it turns out to be a bone, um, to be able to be increase your efficiency by a factor of you know, a thousand is incredible. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what the police's bias was against the dogs at the start, but they, because they sat there for a couple of days and didn't work. And, um, but from that moment on, um, dogs came in from every state and um, and they just yeah those dogs from South Australia literally worked until they 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 were so fatigued in their paws even that they put little boots on them to stop them uh, you know step, standing on the all the bad rubble and stuff but even so that their they their paws become damaged and they had to rest them in the end and um, but yeah that was grim and gruesome work and uh, I think for me I saw the best and worst of mankind during that I, I remember being in, so we were in a a compound at the, in um, uh, in King Lake at the police station. So we had a big, we set up our, um, our compound there. And within 24 hours, all these trucks started rolling in with all these donated items by, from businesses. And, uh, you know, the government set up um, stations where people would come in and um, could get emergency, you know, clothing and, and, and money and food. Uh, and it was really... You know, it was the very best of humankind, that, that human spirit of coming in and all the volunteers turned up and started helping and so forth. But at the same time, uh, there was people looting, um, you know, there was people coming in and trying to get those donations of money that had actually not lost their home. Uh, there's people coming in and, and taking those donated goods that, again, had not lost their home. Um, and, you know, I, I became friendly with the police sergeant at King Lake. Uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was a fine human and... Um, I remember him having grabbing a, a young punter from the community who had um, taken some donations, some food and some money that he was not entitled to. And he uh, he grabbed him by the ear like a little child and walked him into the police station for a good talking to. So, um, you know, um, you know, I think that's it's, it's probably a theme that goes through my whole emergency services experience. And, and how do you how do you keep yourself, you know, healthy and and. Um, and have perspective on stuff because you're often dealing with um, 
you know, very negative things and, and terrible accidents and, 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 you know, things like that. But, you know, equally I, I've sat back and reflected on some of those scenes and saw, you know, sh superhuman sacrifices uh, by people to help a stranger who's, who's in desperate need. And um, those, those are the sort of things that you try to, to find, to find the balance when you, when you're dealing with some of those terrible things. So. Yeah. The, so you the other day when we spoke, you mentioned the disassociation that you have to do when, you know, when you go into work, but when you deal with situations like this, where you're working on it for days, you see, you know, bits of bone, bits of jaw, when you get home, how do you process that? How do you, do you disassociate? Do you sit and actually allow yourself to process it? What is, what do you do? Um, it's 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 probably an interesting one. I I would like to think that we're probably a bit smarter now. So I'm not sure when Black Sat Day was, but um, I had no counselling about that, and I, I I sort of think something like that is almost mandated. You 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 almost need to go, even if you don't think you need to. You need to go and speak to a psychologist. And I'm and I'm sure it was offered to me at the time, but I never took it up. And you know that particular event didn't bother me um, as much. I don't I don't ever really think back and reflect upon it. Um, like other things, like the Bali bombing, for example, like that, that, that's, I would think about the Bali bombing every single day. Um, and you know, I, I'm not sure why that, that wasn't difficult for me to, you know, one was hard for me to process and one wasn't. So I'm not sure what the machinations of that are, but, um, you know, I think for me, I, maintaining my mental health i'm pretty lucky my wife's a nurse so she understands the industry and the speak so i can have those discussions uh, my son is a, a fourth year medical student so he's he's just about to graduate as a doctor and um you know his girlfriend is a teacher and she you know we, we she she often talks about how weird our house is because she comes in to have dinner and um normal people probably talk about um you know their day and um someone at the supermarket who was being silly or, you know, the price of this or, or, you know, how outrageous that is. But we sit there and talk about medical stuff like it's just, you know, another conversation. And it probably, the filters, the normal filters, I, 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 I absolutely know my humour is, is very left. Um, I um, perspective on a lot of things is probably a little bit uh, tainted based on an industry of, of working that career, but good, good support there. So, one of the things that I'm perhaps proudest about is that I, I feel that I was quite instrumental in a, 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 an informal peer support program that we have at our team. I think it's worth its weight in gold. If you could, if you capture it, you could bottle it, you could sell it. It's just basically what happens in my workplace. I work with seven or eight of the most exceptionally talented paramedics in the land and, and we're not competing. We like each other socially. Um, you know, we, we, they're just good people and so someone does a bad job and what will typically happen is that all text messages will go out and say someone will say oh heads up boys um ben did a, a terrible job and then depending on the scale that job we'll get around ben and and you know it might be text messages it typically will be phone calls and i think the ability to debrief with a peer who and and some people mightn't understand this and might think that this is not a reasonable statement but I don't get much out of peer support from the ambulance service and that's not a slide on it at all. 
but I get the most value out of having a, a debrief with a equal peer who understands the very unique pressures of my role. So someone who understands what it's like to be the sole clinician and team leader in that situation, someone who has been um, in those similar situations, I get the value out of that. I don't, and I, and I mean no disrespect to anyone, but if I get a phone call from a peer support person, and it's perhaps an ALS paramedic who has never, you know, seen something that we've experienced or never been the team leader of a paediatric intubation that's gone wrong, um, I, I, I don't find that a benefit. I find the benefit comes from having that discussion with a peer, and I'm very proud of the the environment we've created in our, in my team where people support each other in that way. Was the incident at the Bali bombing almost a turning point in terms of how you dealt with your mental health as a paramedic? Yes. I, I, I think um, not processing the things that bothered me, um, not, you know, those cases that revisit you at three o'clock in the morning, those images, those scenes that just keep coming back and just, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and you might have had a bad night's sleep because you've thought about a particular case. And they're typically the cases that don't go well. Um, I think even if you get a horrible case and you feel your role in it, your performance in that in that particular case was, was of the standard that's required, you tend to be okay with that stuff. It's when you know you go to a job and um, you perhaps don't perform at the standard that you expect, or perhaps there's an unexpected turn of events that you perhaps didn't predict. Um, you know, you're, you're often it, it's associated where you don't feel that you performed to the standard that you you expect of yourself. So they're the cases that sort of ruminate for me. And the Bali bombing, writing about it, uh, was really cathartic. Um, but it probably was more about that writing about it makes you address it in some form and then going back and writing about uh, other stuff that I'd experienced. And I went right back, right back to the, the basically start of my career and wrote about some stuff. And a lot of that stuff never made the book um, because the book has to be a balance. The book, had, if, you, if you just put in all grim and gruesome stuff there, no one's going to read it. Yeah, and, I've, and I've, I have been accused by several people of causing trauma to people <clears throat> in the book. Um, you know, vicarious trauma by them reading it. So, and I think at the end of the day, no one wants to to read a book that makes them feel sad and depressed. Um, so, and you know, being a parent, that was actually a challenge: is to write a balanced story of. There's certainly some stories in there that are really sad and terrible, but there's you know, a lot of stories that are uplifting and positive, and 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 you know. Um, you know, despite what's happened to someone, we you, you have situations where people um, have great outcomes despite what, what might have happened to them. So, um, you know, the, as I said, I think the it was a sentinel moment to me. It probably didn't occur to me at the time I wrote the book. I, I actually, people ask me why I wrote the book. I never set out to, to make it about mental health. It probably has a far more of a, a, a mental health um, front than I had given credit to. So... But I think you're right. I think that probably was a turning point. One thing I was interested in asking was because, so when I've spoken to the two previous police officers, they've both left the force, but you're someone who's still a paramedic. You're still active. So in writing the book, were you scared of any backlash or potentially, you know, losing your job? And also what was the backlash like if you got any? Um, 
So the number one thing for me the whole time was that I would never embarrass my profession. And particularly, I would, I, I would never want to embarrass the cohort of people I work with. So, and if this sounds a late, I apologise, I'm not meaning it to be, but it was really important that the microflight paramedic group um, were not offended or embarrassed by the book. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's, there's been detractors, I guess, but the, the support from my cohort um, and the positive feedback was just incredibly overwhelming. Um, you know, I, had, I, had, I received a letter from one of my colleague's wife and said, I've never understood why sometimes my husband comes home and he's the way he is, but I do now. Um, and, you know, that was, that was an incredible compliment. Um, um, but, yeah, the, you know, in, in terms of losing your job, I, I wrote, I worked very heavily with Tony Walker, the ambulance ex-CEO. Um, and um, at the end of the day, if they had to, they read it and endorsed every page. Um, and I certainly, you know, I, I worked with them changing and protecting uh, the privacy of people. So there are certain people that I have been named, but they've all um, signed um, releases for that, for that to be done. And the people that I haven't gone to and contacted, that you know, I've changed the names. That you know, not the when there's no names, we change the location, we change, you know, the age of the person. So it, we try and de-identify that that way. So um, that was very important to me, and I'm still very proud to, as I said, to wear the uniform and and represent Ambulance Victoria in the best light I can. Um, but I do think that um, without you know, some of the lessons I've learned around mental health, I wouldn't have been here. When I, when, when I sat down and wrote the book was about the case where we performed that surgical amputation we spoke about. Um, I had stopped working, because uh, as I said, it was handled pretty poorly internally, in my opinion. Um, and I thought I was done. I thought I was cooked. And I didn't think I'd ever go back. Um, but I think, you know, my message, and I, I never wanted to be a campaigner for mental health but I, I have been and I've done that and represent them and I'm proud to do that. But my story for young people is about this is what I've learnt, but it's also about, you know, I'm a survivor. I, I have PTSD and uh, I've been able to get through that really low point in my life and, you know, I think management managing it forward is about trying to avoid going back to that low point. So having a strategy in place so that I know now that I have warning signs and uh, I have a really, really wonderful psychologist and um, she makes herself available to me pretty much 24-7. So I could call her right now and I would see her within 24 hours. And, um, you know, finding a good psychologist or a mental, uh, a mental health care professional is like finding a partner. You might have to go on a few dates to find the right one. But once you do, it can be a pretty special relationship. And uh, my lady is, um, she's a bit kooky. She's got the incense burning in the background. Um, she wears the caftan, but she's an exceptionally good human being. And she helps me find perspective uh, when in things when I can't see the light for the forest. And um, I tend to go in there feeling uh, unhappy with things. And I, every single time, basically, every single time, I, I walk out feeling substantially better. And most of the time I, I can go and see her and I see her once or twice and I, I get over that little hump. But I, I think the, the goal for young people is never to send down to that really low ebb because once you get into that really low point, it's really hard to get out of it. The, did you ex expect the support 
that came with the book? Or did you have no expectations uh, whatsoever? I didn't really have any expectations um, about how people would receive it. As I said, my motivations were probably mixed. I wrote it. So my favourite book in the world is A Fortunate Life by Albert Facey. So he wrote a story about his life and uh, with the view of, of just giving something to give to his grandkids so they could know about their granddad's life. So for me, there's part of it. I think a lot of people don't really understand what um, the life of a paramedic is like. And it's an extreme job. You know, it's extreme highs, extreme lows. But most of us, you know, our friends would go about, would have no idea what we do. And a lot of my friends read the book and said, so that's what you do for a living, you know, like it's crazy. <laughs> and because um, you don't sort of go out there and go, oh, gee whiz, I winched onto a mountain today and, uh, you know, I, I went to a car accident and, um, you know, we performed a surgical procedure in the car and the person's, all the person's blood just fell out on the floor in front of me. Um, I don't think you tend to do that. But um, if I can create some awareness um, uh, around what a profession, do, a paramedic does as a profession and, you know, it's a... Uh, you know, if, again, if I can represent my profession and um, and and get it out there, I'm happy to do that. And you know, the the the, the feedback has been just incredibly, overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I can only think of one really bad um, bit of feedback that I've gotten. That that will come down to a personality thing, I'm sure, because I, you know, I, I was doing some training recently, and I live in Newport, and I had to go to the Altona Ambulance Station to do some training. Uh, and I walked in and I saw the book sitting on the bookshelf in the training room and I was really tickled. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? And I picked it up and, oh, my God, someone has gone to town in there and said the most horrible things um, pretty much every page. Uh, and, you know, I'd love to have the conversation with whoever that was because there was some some pretty horrific things, horrific things said. Um, but at the end of the day, that'll be a person who just doesn't like me. Um, mm. Or perhaps there's some tall poppy. In there, I'm not sure, but um, you know, at the end of the day, with people in anything, there's always going to be at least one person who doesn't like what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, I was, I, I was sort of expecting that. I probably expected it more, to be honest, because I think people in, in emergency services don't like the tall poppy, so that they're pretty quick to knock you down. But no, look, um, I released the book at the start of COVID, which was a bit unfortunate, and. Um, but you know, I, I've got, I've had lots of platforms. I've spoken at lots of conferences, and I've spoken to lots of organisations around mental health. Um, and you know, if I can get that message out, I speak to lots of young ambulance um, groups going through on various topics, uh, but including mental health. So, if if my story, um, you know, helps someone deal with their mental health, that's great. I think perhaps the, the nicest compliments I ever get around the book is when, and it happens reasonably frequently, is when I'll be at a hospital or, you know, I'll be somewhere and a paramedic will come up to me and said, oh, I read your book. And I go, oh, thanks. What did you think of it? And it always makes me really uncomfortable. And they go, oh, I became a paramedic because I read your book. Um, and, you know, that's the most uh, you know, rewarding thing if I can... If, you know, if my story's inspired someone to go down that path and if the job's half as good as uh, to them as it's been to me, then they can have a wonderful career. So um, that's really touching that stuff. The side I'm also interested in with what you do is the fitness aspect, the keeping yourself fit. Because, you know, 
in the police, you tend to see some police officers in really poor shape struggle to keep up with someone in a chase if necessary. But I don't think I've ever seen a paramedic out of shape because some of the jobs you have to do are quite yeah, haven't incredibly tense. There's plenty of yes. Um, yeah, look, I, I come from work. I worked in the fitness industry. Uh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the impacts of not exercising. I exercise every single day. Um, and if there's a day that I don't, so today, um, this would be my normal gym time now because we got cut off on our, the other day and I've got to write a presentation today. So I won't go to the gym today and, and it's already bothering me, you know, that I, I've, <laughs> I've mucked up my routine. Um, but no, it's, it's so, so important. And, you know, um, you know, I, I work with a, uh, an elite level sports team in Melbourne and, um, the psychologist that's in there and, you know, we have often have conversations around, um, the, the, the value of exercise in mental health. And, um, it, it's, it just goes hand in hand, I think with the industry. And uh, the other part of it is for me, I, you know, it is not common, but, you know, sometimes there is a very big physical aspect of my job and, um, I don't ever want to get exposed. I don't want to ever let the team down can't do the job because I'm not fit enough to do the swimming or walk up the mountain. Um, you know, I had to, was uh, a couple of years ago, I got dropped into, um, into the bush, only probably three or 400 meters from the patient, but our roll equipment's about 40 kilos. And, um, I had to climb across these huge granite boulders to get to the patient. And, um, you know, I can remember feeling my heart rate at one stage and it was about 180 and I, and I, and I, I am, I'm always reasonably fit. And I just, I couldn't imagine being able to have done that if I didn't have that base of fitness to get to that patient. So I, I don't ever want to be that person. So that, that anxiety probably of not letting myself or the team down drives me to maintain it. But, you know, you, as you, you probably know that people get addicted to exercise simply just can't not do it they just have to. that's that's myself yeah that, and I, so i'm injured at the minute and it's horrible trying to s take a step back because i know i can do things but because of this injury i'm like i can't just i can't do the long-term damage so it's like i've just got to step back and sort of allow myself to recover but it's so hard because in my head i'm like i could just go and run I could just go and do this. I could just go and do that, but it's not that easy anymore. Well, as I said, I, I work. Uh, I work within an AFL football team, and I was speaking to one of the footballers who was out injured, and I said, oh, "And he, so he's in a rehab group, and they're they're separate to the main group." And I said, "Oh, how's rehab, mate?" And he said to me, "This was just yesterday." He just said, "It's absolutely horrific." He goes, "I hate it." I said, it's, you, "You look over sometimes when you're you're doing the big." You know the big sessions and the high workloads and you go geez it'd be nice to have a bit of a spell in rehab and he said you come here and he goes it's just horrible i just want to be out with the other guys um and i think um you know when you're an elite sports person um that impact of not being able to not not only exercise but uh, do you do your, your work must impact them even more so yeah i used to work for a rugby club back in the uk and they had the they called them the panthers like the rehab group and there were some lads in there who, you know, full ACL blowouts and stuff. So they're there for a good half a year, if not more. And you could just see in them the lack of enthusiasm yeah. to be there. Because it's like, you know, if 
especially for rugby players, like a forward could probably squat 180, 200 kilo, but you're getting him to do iso- isometrics for 20, 30 seconds, and it's just not the same thing. And you can see just they just don't want to be there. They don't want to be doing it. They yeah. prefer to be sat on the couch at that point, yeah. just just not doing it. But it's it's trying to get that across. Like this 20-second isometric right now is more beneficial to, to you than doing anything else. And it's so hard to get across to people. Yeah, oh, I absolutely know what you're talking about. And I, I look at that group and the players come in and, and um, um, I think, you know, the, the devastation of, uh, that person, but also the people around them and their friendship group, and um, you know, the sporting club that I'm at is. Um, we had a, a fellow injured himself recently, and and that ripple effect was it went right through. It was not just he was devastated. All the the trainers, the physios, the sports scientists—they're all just so disappointed for him. Um, so yeah, look, it's it's just one of those things, though, isn't it? You just got to uh, you just got to soldier on. That's the one. So you're coming to, you said the other day, you're coming towards the end of your career as a paramedic. What do you plan to do? Do you plan to just retire and enjoy the fruits of life? Or do you, have you got things lined up? Because you don't take me as the kind of person who can just sit and enjoy the fruits of life. Um, I sort of always been a person who's always, according to my wife, I'll spend, I'll get into something. I'll spend $10,000 on a, on a hobby. Uh, and then move on to the next one. Uh, at the moment, I'm building and playing guitars, and I really love that. Um, it's a big part of what I do. Um, I've got a, I've got a workshop, so I've got all the machines and tools and things in it. So that's I've always done that and love that. But no, you're right. I I will have to do something. Um, whether the you know working in the elite sports club is something that continues on, I'm not sure. Uh, it is a stressful world in that environment. It's a high-paced, high-pressure world. I've really enjoyed it. It's been so insightful and it's very humbling. Um, but whether that you know turns out to something next year, I'm not sure. But um, I'm fairly determined to go into something where I give back somehow. So I, I, I do a lot of stuff, you know, mentoring young people, um, doing stuff for the universities. Uh, so perhaps some volunteering will be a part of my future, I think. Um, and if I can make it sort of relatable back to the industry, um, maybe I do that. But I'm not sure. But there will have to be something. Yeah, it would be. Um, I think you know, having a purpose is really important. And um, But, I, you know, I, as I said, the being a paramedic is a challenging job now for not the reasons that people would expect. Um, this ramping and the, the state of the health system, as we've already spoken about, is it creates... Um, some terrible, um, you know, stress for our for our young people, and um, sadly, a lot of them are leaving because it's not the job that they thought it was going to be. So maybe if I can get involved in that somehow and giving back to those young people, that would be good. I, I just love. I, I've always had a thing for for teaching and helping young people come into the industry and, and grow and and become better. So maybe I'll try and link into that somehow. But yeah, we'll see. But there will be something. What's the role that you do currently within elite sport in the AFL club? Um, so I, I, I just do a little bit of work in, uh, with their leadership group, um, so the on-field leaders, uh, and a little bit of stuff around process. Um, but it's largely just a, a, a formal education stuff around 
leadership, uh, human factors. That's sort of what I, I've sort of specialised in uni in the postgrad setting. Um, so, you know, that I think the, the elite sports team are always looking for a millimetre and, you know, they, they've brought me in, I think, for a different perspective around leadership and, um, you know, t building teams and with the education background, I do the little formal education pieces around, you know, situational leadership, communication, um, you know, just whatever topic falls out, culture. Uh, so that they are, it's it's not a real world. It's 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 a bubble of superhumans, really. They're elite um, sports people are surrounded by elite staff that help work them. So just adding a tiny little bit of detail in that space. So it's been it's been really fun and exciting, but it's at the same time a little bit stressful as well. Yeah. Um, I'll just ask you one final question that I do ask everyone, and that's how would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered by someone who is passionate about their job um, and um, did their best to be the best paramedic I could be, but also I'd like to be remembered by someone that if you went to and, and asked for some help that I would you know I was known as a person who would help you. And I think that uh, I think most of my friends would 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 support that statement and saying that uh, you know that I I am someone that is, is there to help. So and I think that's just such an important thing in this. If you're gonna come and work this industry, you need to be um, you need to be trying and be good at, at your craft, but you also need to be a good people person and support and help people along the way. And um, that'll do, I reckon. Um, that'll do. Really appreciate it. Just let everyone know where they can find you, where they can buy your book, all that sort of stuff. Um, so darrenhodge.com is the website if people want to get in touch. Um, and the book can be bought at anywhere, in any of the big sites online. So Amazon or... Um, Kimball or Dimmix or any of those places. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, thanks for having me, Ethan. Good luck with your really. endeavours. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on. No, it's a pleasure, and uh, I, I've enjoyed your podcast, mate, so keep it up. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quantum Podcast with Darren Hodge. Like, this one was as good as part one, in my opinion. He's just full of amazing stories. He's experienced incredible things, which... A lot of things humans should not experience during their lifetime or will not experience and you know it's people like him that keeps the world ticking it's selfless people like him who you know keep this world going so go and support Darren in any way you can buy his book follow him on social media um, he's just got an incredible story so if you're interested in buying the book I'll put it in the link in the description and yeah, thank you again for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast, and I will see you next Monday for another episode.